excited to have you guys here this morning. Uh, if we haven't met, my name's Jamie. Uh, I'm the, the pastor elder who gets the, the privilege, the joy of opening up the scriptures, preaching God's word most Sundays, and that is surely the case this morning, which is why I'm standing here right now. Um, if you're new to our church or you haven't been around very long, uh, last week uh, marked the beginning of, of a new chapter in our slow but steady journey through uh, Luke's gospel account. That's where we are right now in the scriptures. We've been there since Advent of last year. That's when we launched uh, this book of the Bible, took a break for the summer months. We've jumped back in now, going back to last week. We ventured into the second half of this great redemptive two-act play, if I could call it that. The first act, as I mentioned last week, meant to answer the question, who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus who calms the wind and the waves with his voice? Who is this Jesus who makes blind men see and lame men walk, casting out demons by the legions, raising the dead on more than one occasion? Curtain closing on act one, so to speak, with Peter's famous declaration, one of the most famous declarations in all the scripture. Luke chapter nine, verse 20. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. First act to answer the question, who is this Jesus of Nazareth? Is he a good teacher and nothing more? Is he some pithy moral philosopher who showed up to give us fortune cookie statements and that's all he's got for us? Second act meant to answer the question, why is he here? What does he come to accomplish? And as the curtain opens on Acts 2, uh, Act chapter, or excuse me, Act 2, I should say, um, Jesus answers that question pretty emphatically. He doesn't waste any time. He says, I'm here to suffer and die. The king must die. That's part two of, of any of the gospel accounts where we to read them from start to finish. Very next verse, Luke chapter nine, verse 21. He strictly charged them, commanded them uh, to tell this to no one saying, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. It's a, it's a prophecy that the disciples struggle to accept all the way up to the very last chapter of Luke's gospel account, that road to Emmaus story where the, the two uh, disciples on that road are disoriented, they're devastated, they're confused. Jesus now beginning to direct his gaze toward the city of Jerusalem, going back to last week, the city in which the redemptive promise of a crucified and risen Messiah would be fulfilled. Everything up to this point in Luke's gospel account, helping us to see we need Jesus to forward march to Calvary. I don't know if, if you've been around for this series, you felt it over and over again. That without Christ's atoning work, I'm hopeless. I'm done for. Praise God that this story's marching toward Calvary. Jerusalem now the goal, the focal point of where this story's headed. And believe me when I say that there will not be a dull moment the rest of the way as we step into the pages of, of this story. And so with that, I invite you to open up your Bible to Luke chapter 10. That's where we'll be this morning. If you don't have a Bible, uh, the passage will be up on the screen behind me as we work our way through it. You can track digitally this morning as a 21st century Christian. Let me go ahead and pray for us while you're opening up the scriptures and ask God to do what only he can do. And we will see that in this morning's passage before we're, before we're even done. Heavenly Father, as we'll see on more than one occasion in this brief passage of Scripture that we get to sit with for a brief time this morning, there are some things that we get to do, preaching your word, 
singing your praises, pointing kids in a kid's ministry to Jesus. And then there are some things that only you can do. Raise people from spiritual death to life. Move in our hearts to compel us to the wonder of grace yet again. Compel us to step into the participatory work of your kingdom advancement, evangelistically serving your church. So I invite you by the power of the Holy Spirit to do what only you can do. We'll, we'll do our part this morning. Would you do your part? Because we can't do your part. We need you. We're desperate for you this morning, God, as desperate as we've ever been. Oh, would you move in power this morning as we sit with, with your word Thank you for it. Thank you for divine revelation without which we would be left with our own speculation. Praise you for revealing yourself this morning. May you be glorified and honored as we sit with the scriptures in hand. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. So as I mentioned several times throughout the course of this series, and I'll probably say it numerous times over before we're done because I think it bears repeating, Luke begins his gospel account this way. He composed this writing so that we might know, so that you and I might have certainty. In the words of one commentator, Luke's gospel account, it's the gospel of knowing for sure. That we might have certainty regarding the son and man, of man who came to seek and save the lost. We can have a certainty of faith as we sit with Luke's gospel account. But it's a faith that we must profess for ourselves. And more than that, Luke writes that we might follow Jesus as our Lord and God, that we might not do that thing where we divorce Jesus as Savior from Jesus as King. It's what it means to be a disciple, an outworking of the sure knowledge of who he is, following the only one worthy to give our lives for, without terms, without conditions, going back to last week. Christianity, it's not easy believism. I try to say this a lot around here because easy believism is a cultural uh, expression of the visible church. I prayed a prayer back in the day. I meant it. I'm good to go. Got my ticket to heaven. I'll just coast to my death. Yet Jesus says, going back to Luke chapter nine, verse 23, if you truly wanna follow me, two things are required, self-denial and cross-bearing. Share this quote Last week, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his great work, The Cost of Discipleship, he says, when Christ bids a man to follow him, he bids that man to come and die. That Jesus presents us with the question, will you give up your life for my sake? Christianity is Jesus on the Calvary road asking, are you with me? That Jesus is either infinitely valuable, worth giving up everything to gain, or he's not. He's, he's not some life-enhancing additional slice to the pie to go along with my vocation and my hobbies and my family and sprinkle a little Jesus in, and now I'm a well-rounded individual and I'm good. That's the Jesus that a lot of people believe in around here. When I was in student ministry several years back, I kid you not, I had several parents come up to me as they were dropping their kids off, asking me not to radicalize their children, but to simply help make them more well-rounded individuals as, as a result of our time together. He's either infinitely valuable, worth giving up everything he would ask us to give up in order to gain him, or he's not. There is no third option. Luke's shown us that numerous times over and over. He's gonna make it crystal clear yet again this morning. R.C. Sproul, 
Another quote I shared last week, when it comes right down to it, he says, you either deny Christ and follow yourself or you deny yourself and follow Christ because you can't follow Christ and yourself. Jesus says, deny me and follow you or deny you and follow me. Like the three men in last Sunday's passage were, were presented with a sobering question. As Jesus fixed his eyes on Jerusalem, will I fix my eyes on Jesus? No turning back on the Calvary road, the road of true discipleship. If you pick up the story in chapter 10, verse one, Luke tells us after this, after these encounters with these three men, going back to last week, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. Jesus sends out messengers ahead of him, just as he had with the particular village of the Samaritans, going back to chapter nine, verse 52, not only to make preparations for the cities that he was about to visit on his way to Jerusalem, but also to spread the good news, to bear witness to the truth that the kingdom of God had come near in Jesus, which is perhaps why Jesus sends them out in, in pairs. Deuteronomy 19 tells us that it was the legal requirement of two witnesses in bearing testimony not to mention the encouragement, support, safety, and numbers. Verse two, the first of two coffee cup verses that we'll encounter this morning, two bumper sticker verses. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Right, Jesus, he isn't speaking in the agrarian sense, but rather evangelistically similar to his fishers of men language to Peter back in chapter five. He knows that there are many in those towns whose names are written in heaven, a harvest of souls. Whose harvest? His harvest, Jesus says. God's harvest. First Corinthians three. That's why the apostle Paul would say this. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Right, Paul likens himself to a plowboy. I planted. He likens Apollos to a water boy. Apollos watered driving at the humble task to which he and Apollos have been called. That agrarian imagery, it's meant to free us, to acknowledge what our role is to play in this kingdom work. And knowing that we can't save anyone, nor is God asking us to. Right? Only God can raise dead men to life in Christ. That's why Paul would say elsewhere, Ephesians 2, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. He goes on to say, but God, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved 
and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ. But Paul made us alive together with Christ. That's not what it says. But Apollos made us alive together with Christ. Doesn't say that either. But God, it's his harvest. It's his glory. Which presents a fair question, I think. I mean, namely, why would Jesus then ask to pray for laborers? It's because we've been given the great privilege Paul says, of planting and watering the seed. We get to do that. We get to participate in his kingdom work like the 72, bearing witness to the truth that the kingdom of God has come near in Jesus Christ. Right? The laborers uh, no less needed now than they were then, be it the far reaches of the earth or our own backyard. So in the one sense, we should pray for laborers whom the Lord might send out into the harvest. And with that, and we see it in this morning's passage, then get up off of our knees and put feet to those very prayers as committed laborers ourselves in the work of evangelism. Jesus immediately follows that call to pray with these words. Verse three, go your way. Behold, I'm sending you. Sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. Greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Here Jesus commissions the 72 as he had commissioned the 12 back in chapter 9, a declaration that evangelism wasn't for the apostles only, but rather for all of Jesus' disciples pointing forward to the church's universal mission in the wake of Jesus' resurrection and ascension. Here, Jesus is sending out the 72 to proclaim the kingdom and with that, commissioning them to heal the sick, verse nine, to cast out demons, verse 17. Miracles pointing to the kingdom, authenticating the truth of their message. The journey treacherous as they would find themselves among wolves, Jesus says. The mission urgent. They're commanded not to slow down for pleasantries on the road. Commanded to travel light, a call to faith. Trust in Jesus, a continuing theme throughout Luke's gospel account. We've seen it over and over again. Jesus' words here are a reminder of the Christian life as as we daily trust the Lord to supply our every need. The command to stay in a single house in each town, a call to contentment to be grateful for what the Lord provides on the journey. Again, a reminder of the nature of the Christian life as we learn in whatever situation, Philippians 4, 11, to be content in the Lord. He says, verse eight, whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it. Say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. There are those two roads, again, diverging in a yellow wood, no third option. Jesus knows that there will be towns and villages in which people will receive his disciples, an indication of their receptivity to the gospel of the kingdom. And with that peace and healing, 
Jesus knows that there will be towns and villages in which not a single household will receive his disciples, an indication of their rejection of the gospel of the kingdom. And with that, divine judgment, symbolized by the shaking off of the dust from one's feet, a declaration that 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 particular town was deemed as foreign territory moving on. Receive or reject divine peace or divine judgment. Jesus goes on to get stronger in language. He says in verse 12, I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. This is crazy. Better, Jesus says, to have been a citizen in the pagan cities of Tyre and Sidon, a citizen of Sodom, which God destroyed by fire for all of her wickedness, than to be a citizen in Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, having come face to face with the fulfillment of God's promises in Jesus Christ, only to reject him. Jesus goes even further to say those wicked cities would have repented. Sodom would have repented if the kingdom of God had come near to them in Christ. In the words of one commentator, the greater judgment comes with the greater light. And there is no greater light than Jesus Christ himself. There is no greater rejection than to reject Jesus. Notice that Jesus isn't afraid to talk about the day of judgment. Nor is he afraid to commission his disciples to to talk about it. Unlike many professing Christ followers today who sweep the idea of sin and judgment under the rug, sin is real. Hell is real. Whether we talk about it or not. And we should talk about these things as they highlight all the more the glorious grace of God in the saving work of Jesus Christ. We'll get there in just a minute. The the death that, that Jesus would accomplish at the end of the Calvary road. It would accomplish something that no other death has has accomplished. That in his death, Jesus was dealing with the greatest dilemma in all of human history. Namely, the question of how God could be merciful towards sinners without cheapening his perfect justice. I mean, how, how does God's mercy and forgiveness not call into question his righteous reputation? How does he keep from becoming just another corrupt judge who is willing to sweep crimes under the rug? And the answer, and you know it, Christian, the cross. Romans 3, verses 23 through 26. Paul says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Propitiation meaning the one who would bear our wrath to be received by faith. And Paul goes on to say, And don't miss this. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That the cross of Christ is the only way God can forgive sinners without sacrificing his justice on the altar of his mercy. That the cross of Jesus Christ is where the mercy and justice of God collide 
as God's righteous reputation is vindicated in punishing Jesus for our sin, bearing the judgment that should have fallen on us. We sing it all the time. In our place condemned he stood, sealing our pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a savior. The perfect covenant-keeping sinless Christ dying in the place of imperfect covenant-breaking rebels like you and me. To reject Jesus to reject the message of the gospel, which you just heard, is to reject salvation. And it comes at great peril. And if I could connect the dots for us this morning to what Jesus is saying about these cities, perhaps no greater peril than for we who spend our Sundays in spaces like these, yet never truly receive Christ. Philip Ryken, in his commentary on this morning's passage, says it this way. He says, by the logic of what Jesus said about Sodom and Chorazin, the day of judgment will be most unbearable of all for people who worshiped in Bible teaching, gospel preaching churches, but never entered the kingdom of God. If we have heard the royal message of salvation, he says, then we need to respond to Jesus in faith, trusting the gospel of his kingdom. Jesus could hardly make it any clearer than he does in this passage. There are two and only two destinations, a heaven of peace for those who receive him by faith and a hell of peril for those who reject him in unbelief. In a church like ours, if I could say it as explicitly as I possibly can, none can claim ignorance any more than Bethsaida and Capernaum could. So the question is simple. What is your response to the message of the gospel? The good news is, John 1, 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Maybe today is the day of salvation for some who have been sitting in a seat in a church for years to receive Christ, to believe in his name. He goes on to explicitly declare once again, the message that he's been declaring, verse 16, the one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me, Jesus says. Again, the 72 heralds, their message, the message of the king himself, to reject the herald of the gospel is to reject the Christ of the gospel. And with that, to reject the father who sent his son, the weight of eternity at stake here. Jesus goes on to tell us in 72, they came back. They returned with joy from their mission, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. That was crazy. That thing that just happened on the road. And Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. And they come back rejoicing that Demons were subject to them. Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, proceeds to affirm the authority they've been given over Satan, over demons. Fall of Satan, perhaps referring to the past when Lucifer was cast out of heaven, though more likely referring to the defeat of Satan coinciding with the coming of God's kingdom in Jesus. Christ having come to crush the serpent's head, going back to the very first gospel promise, Genesis 3.15. 
His serpent-crushing power evidenced in the ministry of the 72 and their ability to tread on serpents and scorpions, symbols of evil in his name. Jesus follows with the second bumper sticker statement, which should be so much more than that. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written In heaven. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Do not rejoice first and foremost in your success or your authority or your power. Even that which you've been given for the sake of Christ in your giftings. Rejoice that you belong to Christ. One of the most mind-boggling verses in all of Scripture Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. The apostle John tells us, All who dwell on earth someday will worship it, that is the beast. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb that was slain. Apostle John tells us there's a book that existed before the foundation of the world, before God spoke stars into existence. That book is known as the book of life of the lamb that was slain. He's talking about Jesus there. Let this blow your mind if it hasn't already. According to Revelation 13, 8, your name, Christian, was written in that book before the clock of human history started ticking. Your name was written in heaven before time began. Before God hung his cosmic stage lighting of sun, moon, and stars. Written in heaven, your name. The Apostle Paul says it this way. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world. Paul says, God chose us in Christ And Paul goes on to say that God did so according to the purpose of his will, to the praise, rejoice that your names are in heaven, to the praise of his glorious grace. It's overwhelming. 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 9, Paul says elsewhere, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. In the Greek, before times eternal. Paul says, God gave us his grace in Christ Jesus. His unmerited favor before the ages began. Our name's written in heaven. Rejoice that your name is written in heaven. Before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb that was slain. As I've worded it before, love before time began. Why does God love us? God loves us because he loves us. R.C. Sproul in his commentary says, the ultimate question I have in theology when I consider my redemption is this. Why me? Lord, why did you open my eyes? Why did you change my heart? Why did you open my ears? Why did you give me a delight for those things that formerly I despised? 
It's the pearl of great price. It's the greatest gift ever. Jesus says, here's the ground of your ultimate joy that your names are written in heaven. Why do we not rejoice more? I mean, we could surely get into all the things that distract going back to last week. The idols of comfort, control, approval, security. We can get into the good things that we make ultimate things, including even our families. We can get into the terms and conditions that we bring before Jesus. But I think one of the greatest ones is a profound lack of understanding of what grace is or a failure to lean into the wonder of it all. To wake up each day and to think, well, yeah, why wouldn't I be on God's team, so to speak? Of course. Makes sense. There's something intrinsically lovable about me. Surely I would be within Christendom when all was said and done. Grace, the very word itself, means unmerited favor. More than your influence in the church, rejoice that your name is written in heaven. More than the spiritual gifts that God has bestowed upon you, rejoice that your name is written in heaven. Wonder of wonders that I'm a Christian. I should be in hell right now. Right now. In the words of one commentator, this perennial note of surprise is a mark of anyone who understands the essence of the gospel. I would ask this morning, are you amazed this morning that you're a Christian? An undeserving recipient of God's sovereign, glorious grace. Jesus is rejoicing about it. He goes on to say in verse 21, in that same hour, he, Christ, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father or who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. What a wondrous Trinitarian moment. God the Son rejoices in God the Spirit, giving thanks to God the Father. And it's an immense joy. That word for joy in the Greek, agaliao, means something more intense than any other word translated joy in all of Scripture. It literally means so glad that one jumps. It's where we get the phrase leaping for joy. Here rejoicing in the mysterious, gracious will of the Father. The Father having hidden the secrets of the kingdom of God from those who think they're wise and understanding. Who needs grace when you're wise and understanding? Like the lawyer we'll meet in next week's passage. Self-justifiers. While revealing the secrets of the kingdom of God to those who are childlike. Humility, lowliness. According to his gracious will. It's the heart of what Paul gets after in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, picking up in verse 26. Paul says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. 
Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. It's his harvest. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. It's Mary's song of praise going all the way back to the very beginning of this sermon series. Luke chapter 1, verses 51 and 52. Mary sings. She rejoices before Jesus even speaks these words in chapter 10. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts, the wise, the understanding. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate, the little children. In the words of one commentator, giving grace to the humble is one of God's greatest joys. The grace of knowing God, the grace of being brought into fellowship with God. Jesus rejoices, as should we. Verse 23, he has a moment with his disciples, turns to them privately, says, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Jesus says, not only do you find yourself on the inside of the promise, little children, as he looks to his disciples, but you stand before the fulfillment of the promise. A new day is dawn. The kingdom is drawn near. You've seen, you've heard what the prophets and the kings of old long to see and hear. You've seen and heard the son in the flesh. God's promised Messiah. Count yourselves blessed, Jesus says. The disciples in Jesus' day, they were blessed, as are we on this side of the first coming of Christ. We've been given the final revelation of God in Jesus That's why the author of Hebrews would start his writing with these words. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. That Jesus is the final revelation of God, God's ultimate and final message to mankind. See him in the story that Luke's out to tell. Hear his voice. At this point in the story, on his way to Jerusalem where he would go on to bear our sins in his body on the tree. Think about this for a second. Get the picture of Calvary in your mind. The name Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, would someday, according to Luke's story, be inscribed on a plaque and nailed to a cross so that your name would be inscribed in the book of life that the lamb who was slain. God knows your name, Christian. It's written in his book. Don't let the wonder of that grace get lost on you. As an outworking of that wonder, be glad for the ministry God's given you. Yes and amen. Lean into the ministry to which he's calling you. The laborers are few. We're privileged to participate in his kingdom work. But more than that, rejoice that your name is written in heaven 
And that by grace, you've been brought into eternal fellowship with heaven's king. I was reading a chapter of a light 1,400-page systematic theology read that some men and I in the church are working through right now. Uh, and, and, and there's a chapter on creation, and one of the outworkings of that chapter is it gets into the, this idea of deism. Some of you are familiar with this concept, this idea that God wound up the clock of human history and then just checked out on his creation, and he's hands off. And it's a really convenient uh, worldview because it believes that there is a God and it acknowledges that there is a God, but he's so distant that we actually get to be our own gods until we really need him. And then we call him to, to not be so distant. And one of the most sobering statements, and I'll paraphrase it, in that particular section of that chapter was the statement that said, in 21st century American evangelicalism, there are many walking functional deists today. None of us would ever, I'm not a deist. Nobody would confess that within the church. When we wake up each day, we don't engage with the Lord. We don't trust him. We don't cry out to him. Jesus says, by that grace, you've been brought into eternal fellowship with heaven's king. He's putting on display in this Trinitarian moment the essence of a relationship with God as an outworking of the grace. Not, hey, rejoice your name's written in heaven, live as your own God until the day of your dying and with your last breath, thank him for dying on the cross for you. No, we wake up daily if we understand anything of this grace and go wonder of wonders that I can interact and relate with my God who has restored me to himself. Wonder of wonders that I get to participate in whatever it means to be a laborer where they may be few surrounding me. It's not gonna get any lighter as we move toward Calvary in Luke's gospel account. But this in and of itself is the grace of God to press on our silly notions of third options and to say, I'm with you, Jesus, or I'm not. And so I pray that the wonder of the cross and the hope of salvation and the joy of glad submission to Jesus, our King, awakens your heart this morning, if it hasn't already, for the first time, for the 5,000th time, whatever it is, that we would walk away from this place this morning rejoicing, rejoicing that our names are written in heaven and that we would run out into the streets telling as many people as we can about this God who rescues lost sinners.